This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, big uh, we have a lot of EVTOL talk, but first we'll talk a little bit about the Ingenuity helicopter finally making its first flight. Uh, a little bit about Airbus deliveries. They've outpaced Boeing for Q1 in 2021. And in our EVTOL segment, which will be most of today's show, uh, we're going to talk about the Aska Air SUV, flying SUV, which is actually a, a, seems like a well-thought-out concept. We'll hear Alan's take on it. Um, we'll talk about anti-fragility of the traditional aircraft market versus the EVTOL market. Uh, we'll hear a little bit from a senior Airbus executive, his take on the EVTOL market and pitch book evaluations and projections of the future. So fun times there, guessing what we're going to be doing 10 years from now. We couldn't have even guessed two years in the past because of <laughs> pandemics and other black swan events. But Alan, how you doing? How do you feel about this NASA, NASA event? Pretty cool, huh? Well, it's exciting because, you know, they had initial trouble uh, when they first tried to do the takeoff and they decided to abort it and push it back a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it had some sort of software issue. Didn't it sound like they were rebooting the whole software system for the helicopter? That's what it sounded like. And then uh, it took off, went basically straight up a couple of meters and came straight back down. So it was just a little blip up and a little bit down on the NASA video. It almost <laughs> looked like a Wes crap. Anderson film. Like the way it went up and came back down, it was like, it didn't have that little hover right before you hit the ground. It just was like, beep. And it just like went straight back down. It was a very <laughs> soft landing, but I just, it, it almost felt fake the way it landed. It was very curious. I watched it a couple of times, just wondering if like the camera frame rate was a little wonky or something, but, but yeah, it was interesting. Well, that's just it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, the gravity is a lot less and the, and the thickness of the atmosphere is a lot less. So one, well, I think that's almost, different. that's almost to the point. Yeah. Which is that the way things behave on earth is not the way things behave on on mars which maybe that's exactly why it looks kind of odd to me just the way you know like things kind of slow down as they get closer to the surface we're about they're about to land but this one's like Ba-doop. anyway that's my amateur take on it but um you know so successful this is a big deal you know it seems like a small deal but it's a pretty big deal i mean where do you feel like they're going to go from here they need to do they're probably going to do a couple more short hops just to check out the system and from there i don't know where they're headed obviously they want to start exploring the area and take some overview shots of from of the landing area and trying to get some description what's going on around them but just like with all the other previous rovers the lifetime has been fair much longer than they had predicted so when the lifetime gets longer they start to be more adventurous with uh, uh, all the research crafts whether it be a rover or in this case a helicopter they're probably going to continue to expand expand that envelope until they can gather as much data as they possibly can so it's going to be exciting and it, it's not going to be fast i think the, the the kicker in all this is these projects once to get on the planet seem to take a long time before you actually see any data and the reason is they're going incredibly sl- slow because they only have one asset and if they lose it it's over mm-hmm. so they want to be in particularly very careful about what kind of mission they're going to run and where they're going to go and, and that 
in terms of the general public, before we see any data, it could be a solid year or more before we see anything that's really cool. Well, hopefully at some point DoorDash can bring, you know, a McDonald's quarter pounder, <laughs> you know, over the, you know, it's only like a massive mountain. I don't know what it's called. Is it like Mount Olympus or something on Mars? But yeah, I love drones, <laughs> DoorDashing, you know, to your bubble on the other side of the red planet. So look forward to that. Well, is this finally going to overtake the whole comment? If we can put a man on the moon, then why can't I? Blah, blah, blah. Is it going to be now that I can fly a helicopter on Mars? Why can't I get DoorDash <laughs> helicopter to me? Is that is that, that the new one? That's right? a good it's a good question. But that, gosh, that still holds true. There's so many things about 2021 that have been very <laughs> baffling and frustrating, like just like vaccine rec- registration portals on the web. Oh. Like we couldn't figure those out in D.C. despite putting men on yes. the moon back, you know, 40 years ago. Um, <laughs> there was another one recently yeah. that was just like, baffling me I can't, I can't remember what it was but we have some very high-tech <laughs> things the human race does and yet there's still lots of little things we fall short of but well yeah i guess that's progress it's slow two steps you know 11 steps forward one step back sometimes um right. so we've talked about boeing a bunch recently how they're recovering it also seems like airbus is doing much better now they've actually outpaced boeing with uh deliveries in quarter one for 2021 that uh, Airbus has delivered 125 aircraft compared to Boeing 77. So, I mean, w- what do you feel like the difference is here, Alan? I mean, is it just um, they have some, I mean, the A320neo, which I flew on uh, last month, seems like a great aircraft. I mean, what's yeah, Boeing, what's what's is. Airbus doing uh, that maybe Boeing isn't? I think Boeing's still trying to ramp up after the 737 and 77 issues. They're still trying to get back rolling. And I read recently that Boeing is or airlines are taking some of the 737 maxes without even putting them into service mm-hmm. uh, and that storage usually yeah. yeah well that's unusual because you, you usually don't want to take control of an asset because it starts the clock on payments for that asset particularly something as expensive as an aircraft you don't airlines don't particularly like to have aircraft on the ground they can avoid it but there must be some sort of special arrangement between the airlines and boeing or boeing saying Please take the aircraft. We're going to call it a sale. You don't have to start paying us until you fly it. Probably it's probably what the deal is. So they're, Boeing's trying other ways to get more aircraft moving because I think you know. Remember the parking lot at Boeing is all full of airplanes, uh, 737s, because they kept producing 737s during the pandemic and that, with all the Max issues. So the, my guess is they're trying to clear out the parking lots <laughs> up in Seattle. In the meantime, Airbus is is always had orders and it just continues to kind of chuck along. There is concerns with Airbus because of the extended uh, pandemic and the vaccine. Uh, there's concerns in Europe about how fast the vaccines are getting appropriated out in Europe and it's not going as as well as some other places in the world so there's concern about travel and I know I I think it was France that said they were going to open up to tourists from certain countries which is great for Airbus because a lot of those airplanes are Airbus airplanes Uh, but if that doesn't click then Airbus could be in for a little bit of a, a long run and Boeing's been in it longer than Airbus but I think both companies are really concerned about overhead and employment and what they're going to do over the next six months. So, um, you know, it's, it's going to be hard to say. I know in the United States, the, the upside for Boeing, because Southwest is a large customer, I recently flew Southwest and it was busy, mm-hmm. really busy. The airports are busy. Uh, I would say 
70, 75% of normal. And for Southwest, that means still yeah, that really right. busy. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was pretty busy. So from a Boeing standpoint in Southwest, it looks like Southwest activities are picking up, which is good for Boeing. Uh, Europe needs to get the vaccine out and get, get shots in arms. And I think Airbus will be just fine. But that's going to be the big driver. Yeah, well, and this is another thing that kind of ties into this. You know, you wonder what effect this, you know, the, the do not travel list that the U.S. pushed out yesterday. Um, yep. You know, putting essentially 80% of, com- of countries will carry the do not travel label, which is like their level four uh, risk warning. So, right. you know, the State Department putting that out there, I mean, is that is that really going to deter people? I mean, do people... Does that change the way people feel about the risk at the moment? I mean, just because the State Department says don't go to Mexico. I mean, if you're already planning yeah. on going to Mexico, does that really change it for you? I don't know. It has it has in the past, but obviously in the past it's been more about uh, kidnappings, terrorism, mm-hmm. those sort of things, not, not getting COVID. a flu. Yeah. When right. I went to Turkey a couple of years ago uh, doing some baseball instruction, it was, you know, Turkey as a whole was a do not travel you know level four of course right. you know some of the bigger cities like istanbul are not you know necessarily that risky but you have to be smart about it right um but right. this is completely sure. different than that this is just we don't want you to get covid i mean is that the main main thing here i i, I think that it is but there's you're getting two mixed messages in the united states right now the the first message is everybody should be go out and get vaccinated and they're trying to make that the government's trying to make that possible all the states are working really hard to get everybody mm-hmm. vaccinated on the second hand they're saying well if even if you're vaccinated it doesn't matter you you may contract the virus and spread the virus so what's the point of getting the vaccine <laughs> so there's there's those mixed messages somebody's get that's got to get cleared up pretty fast and i'm surprised that the airlines and the industry air, aircraft industry is not pushing to clarify that because Typically, after you have a vaccine, it's taken its gestation time and you have the immunity buildup in your system, you no longer worry about one contracting or two spreading. So there's going to be a pushback in the United States about not traveling, in my opinion. All right. So we're going to transition here to our EVTOL segment. Uh, First on the docket is the ASCA... uh, Flying SUV is sort of what it's being touted as. Um, And this is a great article from robreport.com. And they are targeting this vehicle at $789,000. And basically the premise here is that this is something that you'll have in your backyard, fly you into the city, take you to work. Um, But Alan, this one, you know, I think what sticks out in contrast with many of the EVTOL companies when they announce their new aircraft is that this one seems it seems thought out from the standpoint that they're not super bought into only or not you know dug into only one form of uh of um power right they have a, a right. gas a gas backup in the car in the uh, aircraft so they're not you know solely going to be battery powered they have some redundancy there and sure. uh it just seems like it could potentially work at least on paper and but what do you feel about the price point because i know you have some strong feelings about the price point of these aircraft in general and and how that's going to impact their viability well being under a million dollars is is a big price point differential between everything else we've been seeing because their price points have been in the couple million dollar range 
up to four or five million dollars a pop. Mm-hmm. So to be under that million dollar price point is big. The question is, how are you going to accomplish it? <laughs> because it's a little harder to to do that, especially on a new aircraft. Because you, when you start thinking about the staff and the infrastructure and the materials and everything else and tooling, uh, supply chain, it's hard to produce a new aircraft at that price point. But maybe they have a couple of things figured out. We're gonna to, we're we're gonna wait and see on that. But it has the right concept, right? The the lower the price point, the more people that can potentially purchase it or or have a mortgage on it and then or lease it, uh, and which will get more of them out there. That's you know you, you got to play that price point issue because you you see this supply demand curve is going to change with that price point. And so far, no one's been talking about the price point of the aircraft, but yeah. and this one we've seen is straight out and they're taking deposits. I think it was like five grand for a deposit. And I always think five grand, like, does that really a deposit and a hundred grand? That's a deposit. Like that's serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or are they, are they refundable, non-refundable? Like a lot of the bigger ones have been refundable for a long time in case the aircraft company goes belly up. But, uh, it's good to see. And then the concept is pretty cool because it's not a vertical takeoff. It's a short takeoff and landing, which is much more up the alley of doable and for a lot less money. Yeah. So I, I wonder if that really tiny deposit, because you're right, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a nothing price. I wonder if that tiny deposit right. is just to get people from, you know, I feel like their target is kind of like a Silicon Valley executive, you know, who's got some money. Yeah. And sure. if you could afford an $800,000 aircraft, $5,000 deposit is like a $20 bill, right? right. So they're right. like, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll throw five grand down. And now you've got them in. It's almost just like giving your email address on a website. If you ask for something oh, very, sure. very small, <laughs> now they're in. Now maybe they invest in the yeah. company. Now maybe they're telling way more people. They're just, you know, it, it's probably well, not about the money. Like it's got to be a, a completely non-factor amount of money, right? They sold a yes. hundred of these. Well, it's only sure. five hundred, you know, five hundred thousand dollars. So maybe it's just to get people into it and feel like they've committed something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just that sort of first article of persuasion. If you get somebody to physically do something on your behalf, now you have some. Yeah, you you have some not necessarily control, but you have some influence of what happens next, right? Now you mm-hmm. build, now you build that little family network because the act of writing that check even though it's relatively small comparison comparison is a commitment and you will most likely uh follow up on that commitment so the trick is is that when the price if and when the price of the aircraft rises how many people are going to stay well if you've already committed to it and you feel like you're already part of that network mm-hmm. and it goes from 800,000 to 1.2 million are you going to stay i think the answer is a lot of people will stay because they feel like they're connected to it and they already made a commitment to it. It's a persuasion technique. Yeah. It's what it's it just, is. Yeah, it's just like those, because sometimes you wonder, because most companies have a software thing, like they'll have a free trial, right? A week, two weeks, month, right. whatever. But some of them have yeah. a $1 trial. So you get a dollar or $7, like, um, yeah, yeah, you know, I think one of them that we use is like a $7 for the first week. And then it's like 150 a month after that. And you're like, why even bother with the $7? Why even bother with the $1 free, you know, trial? It's just that same thing. It's just to get you in there a little bit where you feel like you've committed more. And I imagine the conversion rates, people sticking around, like you said, are way higher for the $1 free trial, even though it's only a $1 difference versus the mm-hmm. free trial. 
right? They've got some yes. skin in the game. Well, yeah, it makes you feel like you made a commitment to it. And you don't, you, it feels mm-hmm. like you made a decision, a positive decision towards an aircraft in this case. And if you back away from it, you're sort of admitting you made a mistake, as weird as that sounds like. And people are reluctant to do that. Mm-hmm. Most people are reluctant to do that. Yeah. So the other thing that sticks out here, though, is this is something that you're going to pilot yourself. And it says they include pilot certification training, I guess, in in the uh, the mm-hmm. purchase price of the ASCA. Um, but it, I mean, how do you feel about that, Alan? I mean, it feels like all these other companies, you know, you're going to be a passenger in these air taxis, right? If you fly with Joby right. or someone else, you're going to arrive at right. the at the helipad or you know, vertipad, vertiport, whatever we're calling it, and then you're going to be a passenger start <laughs> to finish, right? But here, this is yeah. your vehicle. You get in it. You fly the aircraft, and I mean, is that is that a that's a big change, isn't it? It is, uh, because most of the other eVTOL companies are talking about essentially having professional pilots, yeah, mm-hmm. running them all the time. Yeah, so to go to a uh, owner pilot model is a little bit different, and I I think there's obviously the hurdle is going to be training and what kind of training is going to be needed to do that because it's such a different variety of aircraft who's going to train you besides the company that manufacture it that's the only people who can train you unlike like a Cessna 172 uh, there's hundreds of uh, instructors out there who could train you on how to fly that aircraft but in this case they'll have to train you directly and Mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be a little bit of an impediment based on these guys being in California, you know, if you're if you want to go buy an aircraft and, and you're out in New York and you got to travel to California, most likely for a couple of weeks to learn how to fly this thing before you come back. So it's not only the price of the aircraft, it's sort of your time commitment to learn how to fly it. Well, and, and you know, we've talked at length before about just how devastating an EVTOL crash would be as this industry tries to get off the ground. Sure. And I'm sure that almost everyone who flies their own, you know, their own plane so if you own a Cessna or whatever you know like no one mm-hmm. I don't think takes flying lightly but there was a celebrity nope. um you know who they found when he crashed he had a significant amount of opioids in his system um this is a late mm-hmm. uh, baseball player from a couple of years ago and you wonder with this if you're suddenly putting these easy to operate aircraft you know I assume they're going to be easy to operate in the hands of anyone um does that run a risk as a company and for the industry? Like, hey, if, you know, sure. Joe, Joe has a couple drinks and he's like, oh, it's just like push button. It's really easy to fly. I can get in there. I had, a, you know, I just had two beers. I can jump in mine, be in San Francisco in, mm-hmm. in, in 25 minutes. And then that goes down. I mean, is that, I mean, that's a disaster, obviously, no matter what. But it is. You, you wonder if that's, yeah, a, if that's a scenario that if you make these too easy, just like with the Tesla, you know, if you're to be driving in your cell, you know, fully automatic car or autonomous car and you fall asleep because you feel like you can, or you could be drunk because you feel like you could, which again, mm-hmm. wouldn't be anything the manufacturer ever, you know, recommends obviously, but no, no. you wonder what the, um, you know, what, what the fallout comes from that. Yeah. And, and because of the, the, uh, multiple engines set up and the advanced avionics and, and the, the fact that we've gotten a lot smarter and, about basically auto flying the airplane or auto landing the aircraft. I wonder that's going to be um, like in my Honda even that I have. I mean, the Honda knows when you're touching the steering wheel. So if you're if you're in any point in certain sort of auto mode with that CRV, which is what it is, uh, if you take your hand off the the steering wheel, it starts beeping at you, 
And I would imagine if they're smart in the design of the aircraft, they're going to do very similar things. If you do something really stupid, I wonder if it's going to start taking over and say, okay, we're, we're not going to let you do that. Right. Yeah. You're too, flying too close to this structure or you're going too fast. You're going too slow. Is it going to be limited in the fact that what you can and can't do with it? And would it just find a place to land and land itself? Whether you want to or not, it may, you know, from a, from a risk liability standpoint, it may make sense to do that to these aircraft because of the, the number of new quote unquote new pilots mm-hmm. that are going to be with them. It may make sense to design it a systems where you can't crash it. That's, I, I think that's more likely than not right now. So moving on, the uh, the CEO or, or a senior Airbus executive for the uh, helicopter arm of Airbus, uh, Roman uh, Trapp, has uh, expressed some skepticism over the EVTOL market. He said it could be decades before EVTOL aircraft are integrated into an advanced air mobility environment. That's reporting from AIN Online. Um, that the technology is not there. The regulatory environment still is undefined. Um, you know, and safety is, is going to be obviously a, a huge part of what gets this whole ecosystem launched. Um, you know, with him being, you know, obviously running this whole helicopter business, which is so similar, right? Just different, right. you know, commercialization, but all the, like the main safety aspects and the ecosystem very similar. Um, right. I mean, is this going to start to wake people up as more and more invest in SPACs and these companies are raising money? I mean, I feel like we need people speaking out and, and being the dissenting opinion, right? Everyone's really excited, which is great. And you want to see the technology push, you know, what humans can do to new limits. But sure, we need dissenting opinions. And this seems to certainly be one uh, from a very credible source. I mean, how do you feel about his his sentiments on the future? Well, I, I think they're com- you know Airbus and all the helicopter manufacturers today are coming from a, a unique place in that helicopters tend to be those sort of pickup trucks of the sky. They tend to do a variety of, of heavy lift tasks or very difficult tasks. It's not just carrying passengers from A to B, and that's probably the least of the things that they do. There's a lot in law enforcement, right, with a bunch of special equipment on them. There's there's a number of helicopters that are in emergency services, air ambulances. That's that's a unique thing. There's, there's the helicopters to take uh, the workers out to the oil rigs and back. There are the helicopters that do a lot of the heavy lifting and carrying large amounts of whatever heavy heavy items on a hoist from a to b those are the those sort of work environments that helicopters get used in in the eVTOL world really can't do any of those things because the weight's going to be too heavy the demand on power is going to be too much and they can't perform those functions and so from an airbus perspective or from bell helicopter leonardo those kind of companies they're they're not they they don't see a potential marketplace in the uber like yeah. environment mm-hmm. they're they're selling really uh versatile work vehicles that's what they're yeah. selling and so they don't they don't think there's an uh, that big of a marketplace but when the ev tolls get to be air ambulances right that's when that idea will start to shift and then the airbuses of the world will start to get more involved in it because they know that space one, they know the customers. Two, they know all the intricacies of it. And, and, and three, uh, they have the infrastructure to 
to deal with it and to, to make conversions to go to electric. So from an Airbus perspective, I don't think they're too worried about it. When the time comes, I, I think they'll be ready. Well, and speaking of the future, uh, interesting <laughs> a projection analysis from PitchBook uh, about the EVTL air taxi startup uh, market. And essentially, they're projecting that the, the, the market will grow from $1.5 billion of revenue in 2025, which seems like an accurate, like modest start uh, to 150.9 billion by 2035. So Alan, we, we've talked, you're shaking your head. We've talked before about projecting 10 years into the future. I mean, if this was 2018 and you're projecting anything through even three years ahead, it would all be just garbage by this point, thanks to the COVID pandemic. Um, I mean, there's so, so many unforeseen things can happen and these projections Though they do say, hey, you know, here's some things that could impact it long term, such as competition for batteries, um, you know, vehicle configurations, utilization things, certification hurdles. But even then, there's so many potential issues. So the pitch book numbers on the growth of the eVTOL market are about as, as valuable as the paper they're written on. It's very hard to predict that market. And I think in terms of a company, if you're running one of those companies, obviously you like those projections because you can take that to your investors and mm -hmm. show what a great, <laughs> great market you're in, which is fantastic, right? I mean, that's how you raise, that's how you raise money. You need some rosy projections uh, to leverage. The, the issue really comes about from an aircraft, aircraft company perspective is every roughly every seven years is some sort of economic downturn so you want to try to uh, navigate that roller coaster that is the u.s slash world economy and so the, the the companies that seem to do well are the companies that are always always hedging their bets and sort of playing it a little bit on the safe side because a two-year economic downturn will wipe you out and it's, and it's killed a lot of aircraft companies over the years. So historically, uh, there's that there's, they've, they've designed their companies to be resilient. And what I mean by is that is that if they had a 25% reduction in, in output or 50% reduction in output, they still can make money on each aircraft and keep the production line running. Yeah. You don't need to sell a thousand aircraft to be productive. You need to be able to sell 50 aircraft and make some money and be happy with it. If you sell a hundred, that's great. If you sell a thousand, you know, obviously this, you're just rolling in the money. But uh, a lot of aircraft companies that get too leveraged and can't handle that first economic downturn because it on, on typically takes four to five years to get through initial design and to type certificate for an airplane. If in the middle of that, somewhere beginning, middle or end, there's some sort of economic downturn, it just wipes out airplanes. Just wipes out designs, wipes out companies. So you have to uh, build that into your system. And I'm not sure, watching some of this, I'm not sure that's built into some of these companies. You won't be able to take that downturn. No matter how rosy the pitch book <laughs> predictions are, uh, real world hits you. And that's why if you're looking a year out, that's about as really as far as you can do, honestly, in the aircraft market. Well, their market size graph is just like laughably <laughs> just they added $20 billion a year, like every two years. Like it's, it's like just Tesla a per stock. Per yeah. perfect line. It's like, in what world is that? I mean, in 2035, 
I mean, battery technology might be incredible. There might be hydrogen. There might be all these crazy new things. I mean, that are just oh, already, sure. you know, like we, we have no idea what's going to happen. There could also be a major mining issue. Like cobalt is already becoming more scarce. Like the cobalt mining right. industry is difficult. Right. And it's not right. just EVTOLs that need batteries. It's potentially millions and millions of cars, you know, millions of little scooters and electric bikes. Battery <laughs> demand is in, is going to be intense just in the next couple of years. I mean, yes, you're going to see the amount of cars like it's not going to be a linear, uh, you know, increase in the amount of electric cars on the on the road. It's going to be an explosion just in the next couple couple years because GM's coming out with right. their own platform, Volkswagen. I mean, yep. every auto manufacturer is going to have ten different cars you can buy. They're actually pretty solid cars now, right? So. Right. I mean, does that mean battery prices skyrocket? Does that mean battery technology really takes off and everything? There just could be a, an incredible amount of variability about where that goes, not to mention reconfiguration of cities, you know, another potential pandemic, just the right. way people are traveling is changing. And we're not going to know the fallout of that for another couple of years, right? Like, are people leaving That's the right. cities for good? Are they, is commuting changing? Does work from home completely reduce a lot of the uh, demand for travel into cities? I don't know. There's lots of mm. lots of questions. Yeah, and I think from the engineering perspective on it, and, and I've bounced on this a couple of times lately, so it's just rattled, rattled inside my head, which is from the engineer, design engineer's perspective on, on these companies, EVTOL, regular airplane company, don't really care. It's the same sort of issue. There, there is a decided separation in, I think, a number of engineers' minds between the job and the company. The success of the company doesn't necessarily matter too much as much as getting the little engineering task done. And I, I think in these eVTOL companies, you've got to be super careful about that. Because there are people in this world that's, and I get it. I mean, if you're working for a large aircraft company, you, you typically fall into that mode of, they're never going anywhere. What do I have to worry about? I do my job. I check the boxes. I do what's required of me. And I get a paycheck every Friday. That's how it works. Mm -hmm. The problem is on these small aircraft companies, those decisions you make have a financial impact on the health of the company. And until you meld those two together and realize, yeah, I can check the box. But if it doesn't produce a, a valuable aircraft to a potential customer, then it doesn't matter. And I, so <laughs> there's, there's a lot of variables. And I, I wonder if this is part of the issue about the Wichita thing, where a lot of these eVTOL companies are not being based in Kansas or near existing aircraft companies down in Georgia where Gulfstream is, or pick them, near Seattle or, mm -hmm. or in Oregon. Is it because the engineers are just too set in their ways and they don't really care about the health of the aircraft company? And so they're deciding to pick up non-aerospace people, roughly, or younger people that don't have any experience in that industry to push their aircraft company forward? There is a weird dynamic that's going on right now that the existing aircraft infrastructure is not being tapped for a lot of the EVTL employment. It's curious. And I'm not, I haven't put my finger on it yet, but I think over the next couple of months, we'll get a better feel for it so we can see what's happening. But I do think the success and failure of these companies doesn't necessarily lie 
in the investment room, and a lot of it lies on the ability of the engineers to deliver a quality product at a, at a good cost. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening, and please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.